Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In May 2018, the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star held a presentation about the STARS investigation fixing our foster care crisis. Members of the STARS reporting team discussed their foster care research in Arizona. They also discussed which cities and states are doing a better job of keeping families together and ultimately what Arizona can learn from others to fix our foster care crisis. The Arizona Daily Star, with support from the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the USC Annenberg Center's Fund for Journalism on Child Well-Being, investigated how Arizona came to have one of the nation's highest rates of child removal and how we can help keep kids at home by helping at-risk families break generational cycles of trauma, neglect, or abuse. Four star journalists talked with more than 100 local, state, and national leaders in reform over the past year. They visited six U.S. states to see what programs are working to support families at home, transform child safety agencies, and guide children and families to a healthy future. In part two of this two-part 30-minute series, reporter Perla Treviso will speak about her work, which shows the specific challenges that families of color and immigrant families face. Arizona Daily Star editorial page editor Sarah Garrick-Gasson will share what she learned in Michigan and California, where programs successfully serve clients over the long haul. Finally, we'll hear excerpts from young people who have experienced foster care. Good morning. My name is Perla Treviso. I'm the border and immigration reporter for The Star. And I was asked to participate in this team to make sure that we cover as much of the community as possible. So while my colleagues focused on the broader community, I was tasked with focusing on the communities of color, the immigrant communities, the refugees, and it's not to say that they necessarily do not face the same challenges as the as the community at large, but they have added challenges that can put their cases, can can complicate their cases even further, and, and, and that can result in kids staying in foster care longer than needed or parents losing their rights unnecessarily. So in Arizona, about 60% of the children being removed from their homes are children of color, and that's roughly about the same percentage of children of the overall population for children of color. Two groups are particularly overrepresented, and that's uh, African American and Native Americans. In Arizona overall, Hispanic children, is not that they're necessarily overrepresented, but they represent the largest share when you break them down by ethnicity. And there's research that over and underrepresented can have its challenges. It can be that you know people are not coming in contact with the system. It can be that they're being left in dangerous situations. It also varies by generation and country of origin, so it's not as clear cut to say there's no issue with Hispanics because they're roughly the same share of the population. And Hispanics are also the largest and fastest growing demographic in the state. So even if they're not uh, overrepresented by this measurement, it it should matter what's happening to this group because they're going to to make up the largest share of children in, in Arizona and in, in communities like Tucson. One thing, so I, as I started reporting this, I'm, I'm new to child welfare. I have written about this 
periodically, but it's not something I focus on. And so as I start researching and talking to the sources of my colleagues, one thing that I quickly realized is that there was not much conversation going on about these communities. There was not uh, specific policies or studies. I know at some point, maybe 10 years ago, Arizona had uh, DCS or then CPS had some committees and the Pima County Court has had some working groups, but I couldn't find anything that had resulted of that. I, I found references to, to these groups, to papers, but no, there hadn't been any formal studies about what was going on with these groups. There were no initiatives to to then figure out how can, where in the process are we seeing disparities and disproportionalities. And it's not only with the child welfare system. I, uh, there was a recent report by, for race for results that children of color in general in Arizona and in the country are lagging behind with educational attainment, have uh, higher poverty levels, they live in neighborhoods where they have less resources, and as they said, it's all interconnected. So the, it, the child removals and the poverty and education, it goes hand in hand. So there was no data. Um, DCS, well, they made experts and officials available for my colleagues. They never responded to my interviews requests. So I never got to talk to them specifically about what they're seeing, what trends, how they're addressing the issues. Well, there was a lot more data for the overall population or the delinquency side of the courts. There was hardly any data broken down by ethnicity or race by the dependency side. So even though this is solution, I think here in Tucson and Arizona, when it comes to children and communities of color, we're starting even at a, we, we have to take a step even further back to figure out where the problems are, where the disparities are happening in the system, at what part of the process. So we need to first identify what the problems are and where they are before we can come to solutions. But Emily um, went to Allegheny County and they also had a big disproportionality problem specifically with the African American community. And so one of the solutions that we highlighted for my part is actually from Emily's and they, they start by looking at data. I think data is key, not only with communities of color, but with the whole child welfare system that we looked into as part of the project. So they, they first start looking at data, figure out where the over-representation of, of, of minorities was happening. They worked on educating caseworkers and juveniles. I said, the solutions do not necessarily have to be different for communities of color, but you do have to add that added to have that additional education and training and be sensitive and, and you know, know the communities you're working with, that not every community is going to receive the information the same way, not every community needs exactly the same way, the, the services the same way. So they were educating case workers, juvenile court, they were making sure people acknowledge biases, both personal and structural. They were doing training on racial equity principles, something I continue to hear that it's not about equality, it's about equity. And I think that that was a somewhat new term for me that you know, it's, it's not that you, you spread the services among everyone equally, but you, you focus on equity and make sure that everyone's receiving what they need to get to the same level. Um, and they were using a disparity index to evaluate progress. And I think that's, that goes back to the whole evidence base. They, it's not just enough to do research and put a program there and say it's solved, but to have a way to measure progress and identify what's working, what's not working, and be able to adjust that. Uh, another of the solutions came from California. Patty and I were also recipients of a fellowship from Annenberg. And 
we kept hearing, we did roundtable discussions with foster care uh, service providers, stakeholders, and we kept hearing that there's, Tucson has a lot of nonprofits, especially for a city this size. There's a lot of people wanting to do good, people wanting to provide services, but that they often operated in silos. There were, you know, two, three groups doing the same thing and not communicating, or there, and, and so there was, you know, how can we work better together? How can we collaborate? And of course, one of the issues is funding, because a lot of the times you're competing for the same sources of funding. So I want to sell my program because <laughs> I need this funding. And, and so there's, there's a, at, at times very little incentive to work together. And so in California, they took us to a place called the Magnolia Center. And it works two ways. So one aspect of it is a building. It's a beautiful building very modern looking where you have um, different agencies operating out of that same building. So you have a health clinic, you have a, a bank or a credit union, you have literacy programs, you have early childhood education, and so they all pay rent based on the square footage they're using, and, and they you know, someone, a family walks into a building, the LA County has uh, welfare, child welfare services, child support, and something else. So, you know, a family can walk in, go to the clinic, go to the bank, take English classes, take their kids to early preschool. And then broadly, because not everyone can work out of the same building, they created this system called um, CareLink or something like that, where they use a 211 service and they share information. So if a family comes to me, I input the information there and then you can see if the family came, what services I offered, and then I pass them on to this other organization and they write in there what services they offer and what's the result. So agencies can kind of track what's happening with the family and make sure that they did receive the services and how they can complement that and serve the whole family as opposed to work piece by piece. And they They've all signed an MOU because there's privacy concerns, and that was one of the things that we got from our roundtable discussion. How do you make sure that the family's privacy and information is not compromised? So this, this could be a model that could work here in Tucson. There's a lot of groups that want to work together. There's a lot of roundtable discussions. There's a lot of breakfasts and lunches, and, and you know, but how do you move beyond that? And I know there's some possibly buildings here where if there was a, the interest, you know, a, a group of, of you could come together and maybe see if that could be a model for different neighborhoods in the city, because transportation is one of the biggest issues for these families, or, or if they work three jobs, how do they get to all those different appointments when they have to take a bus that takes them three hours and then take off uh, time from work? So that was something that, um, that we looked into and we presented in the story and I have more information on that and can connect them to the place there. And maybe it's not exactly a Magnolia place, but it could be used as an idea of something that could apply here in Tucson. And another solution actually was from right here at home. Um, one of the issues that we've been seeing, and because there's no data, it's hard to gauge how big of the problem is, but is what happens when a parent gets detained, uh, someone who's here in the country undocumented, gets detained by immigration or deported. And although from the stories I'm hearing, it's not necessarily that you know ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, arrest the parent, and then the kids automatically go to child, uh, child welfare or CPS. 
now DCS, mm -hmm. but it's more the issue that they face the same problems that the community faces. So let's say a parent gets detained or deported and then the single mother that's left has a drug addiction problem or then remarries or it's with someone else and there's a domestic violence issue or now there's no income and she gets into trouble. I mean, the, the same issues that apply to the community at large, but then what do you do as a caseworker if you can't communicate with the parent, if the parent is in detention and you don't know about immigration law and you develop a case plan that the parent not, might not be able to follow to begin with, or how do you work with two different governments? How do you make sure that parents can do visitations when they're across the border? And so a group, a couple of years ago, a group of uh, advocates child welfare workers, social workers, judges, Judge Quigley is very involved in this project, got together and formed a transnational committee. And they start first getting together to identify those problems, and then they develop a toolkit. Because a lot of these initiatives, the problem is that you have the one champion who starts this, and then the person leaves, and it all falls apart. So they develop a toolkit to educate. They're educating judges in other parts of the country. They're training child welfare workers. They're uh, training advocates and, and people. So this is a model that started here in Pima County. So solutions don't always have to be in California, in Washington, other places, right? Sometimes the solutions can be found at home. And this is a model that can actually spread to other parts of Arizona. Maricopa has a much bigger number that we do here, and they have nothing like this. And it's very grassroots. They have no outside funding. It was just people wanting to improve the system and work better with each other because the core of this is communication. And so that was my, my last solution, basically. And, and I told the story of this father who had been deported and the, the, the mom lost custody of the kids and, and he fought for it. It took him more than two years to regain custody of his kids from across the border in Nogales. And, and at the end, it was a happy story. So it's to highlight that if people communicate with each other, it saves the state money because they're not spending more money on kids that they, they have the parents that can take care of them and it helps the parents regain custody. And so the, at the end, what I want to conclude with is that when we think of immigrant communities, when we think of refugees, when we think of communities of color, it's not that they're more prone to be abusive or neglectful towards their children. It's just that they might face additional challenges that can complicate their cases and, and we need to identify what are the issues to be able to solve them. Thank you. You are listening to a joint presentation by the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star about the STARS investigation, Fixing Our Foster Care Crisis, on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Hi, my name is Sarah Garrett-Gasson, and I'm the editorial page editor at the Arizona Daily Star. I focused on reinvention, which is what happens after foster care, whether that is you are reunited with your family, because about half of all children, roughly, who enter the foster care system who are removed from homes will return to those families um, of origin. And so that presents a challenge for both the family, the adults in the family, and the kids in the family. And I went to Michigan because they have a really strong uh, system in place statewide. And part of the reason that it's been so successful with, it's called the Family Reunification Program. And it started in the mid to late 90s in the Detroit area when uh, child welfare workers realized that 
there were so many children being removed from their homes, there was not the capacity among foster care families to take in all of those kids. So they decided, we need to try something different, which I think is a very logical and good thing to do. Um, and so what they did is they decided to put in money. They did it with a pilot program, and now it's pretty much statewide. Once a judge decides the children are going to be returned to the home, the family reunification program kicks in. And that entails four months of pretty much 24-7 availability for assistance for the family. The caseload for the family reunification program, the workers who work with that are separate and this is really important, that they're separate from the child welfare and investigations departments. So it's not, hi, we come to your home, we decide that you're unfit, we remove your child, and now we're going to try to help you, so please trust us, because that just doesn't work. So in Michigan, the caseload, the family has a family worker, each family worker has six families that they're working with. And then they have a therapeutic supervisor who can provide therapeutic services. And that person oversees 12 families. So the opportunity to spend quality time and attention in the home with these families, work with them, is amazing. Because Arizona has something similar, but they step it down, they step down the visits really pretty quickly, and by the end of the 90 days in Arizona, you're pretty much on your own. You're, you get checked in with every once in a while, but it's not like Michigan, where there is someone in your home um, more intensively, more often when the, fa when the kids come back, because that is the most stressful time, because as many people explained when I was there, when you're a child and you're removed from your home, your concept of what home is and what your family is doesn't really change because you're remembering your experience. But in the interim, while the child is removed, the parents are doing a heck of a lot of work. They're, um, they have services. They're working on um, possibly addiction programs. They're working on parenting skills. And so when the children are returned to the home, the kids are expecting it to be like it was. And the parents are trying their darndest to be better at whatever it was that led to the situation to begin with. And so those don't always go together really well and very easily. So they have found that some of the most stressful times um, when kids are at risk of being re removed from their homes is right at that point of reunification. So in Michigan, they step up the interventions. They step up the visits with the therapeutic caseworkers, with the family workers. And it's something that has done tremendously well in Michigan. And because we always like to talk about money when we're dealing with the legislature, um, because things need to be um, not just make sense and be helpful in a human and societal way, but also we need to talk about dollars spent wisely. In Michigan, it costs about $30,000 per year to have a child in foster care, in the foster care system. It costs $6,700 for a family to be in the family reunification program. So just think about that. If you can keep a kid from being removed and re 
joining that group of foster children, it pays off in so many different ways. And that was a lesson that I really took from Michigan that I think Arizona really needs to pay attention to. You can tell that I'm on the editorial side of things since I'm pontificating about uh, what I think should happen. But it's based in the research and, and what, we've, what we learned. So for reinvention, aging out, these are children, youth, who've haven't been adopted, they haven't gone to a kinship placement, they are older and more established, probably in the system, they've probably had multiple placements, and they're turning 18. And as one of the, the youth that we'll see in the video shortly said, it's supposed to be we turn 18 and we're supposed to be magically on our own and be a functioning adult and know how everything works and have all these skills, but the catch-22 for youth in, in that age group is if you're growing up in the foster care system, you don't get to make decisions for yourself. You don't get to have those sort of nights when you go out and you come home a little late and there's some consequences, but you're learning from your mistakes, you're making decisions, you're deciding what you want to do, what you want to be, and how to have increased responsibility. Because the youth that I spoke with at this program in California called First Place for Youth, um, in the, centered in the Oakland area, they were saying, it's not like you turn 18 and everything all the answers are known. I mean, these are it, it's kids from situations they've never been in a place on their own. They've never really had the experience of having their own room, necessarily, of making a decision that might not be the best, but not having the consequence be, you came home late or you talked back, so we're moving your, your placement. Because, um, so it's youth finding their way when they're 18. In Arizona, we were one of the earliest states to extend foster care eligibility to the age of 21, so which is really good, except you can imagine if you're growing up in the system and you turn 18 and you have the option of not having to deal with caseworkers and not having to deal with all of that anymore, it sounds pretty appealing. And so between 700 and 800 youth age out, meaning they turn 18, um, of the system every year in Arizona, and about half of those will stay till they're 21. It's entirely voluntary. They're basically signing up. Yes, I want to keep receiving services. And so there is assistance for, for uh, youth who go that route. The problem is half of those are out of the foster care system. They've said, no, I, I don't want this anymore by the time they're 19. And to re-enter the programs in Arizona, you have to be, you have to have, like, have a job or be going to school. You have to meet these benchmarks that if you're on your own without the skills and the resources, you're not going to have a really high chance of being able to meet those benchmarks to get back into the system to help you get back on your feet. At First Place for Youth, they focus on what they call kind of a titanic approach, which is pulling people into the lifeboat. They do assessments on the youth when they come in, and the lower your, or the higher risk you are, the more chance you have of being accepted into the program when there's room. Because they've 
realized that um, a third, roughly a third of youth who've been in foster care will experience homelessness as, as adults once they're 18, and that 50% of youth in foster care don't graduate from high school, and 99%, or oh, let's flip that around, only 1% of kids who've been in foster care will graduate from college, which is just stunning. So it, first place for youth, they're in five California counties, and the system in California is county-run, so it's different, as my colleagues have said, than the Arizona system where we have the state bureaucracy. But they focus on getting a youth into an apartment first, get that stable home, and then they work with caseworkers on education and employment skills. And their big focus at First Place for Youth is data because they like to say success is not measured in hugs because you can have you can feel all the warm appreciative feelings that come with a personal connection but it sounds cold but if you don't have the data and that youth leaves your program and isn't equipped to focus and deal with life outside of that then you haven't really succeeded. You might feel great about it, but you're not really helping. So they keep track of everything. They know if you come in and you have eighth grade level, roughly, skills in math and English, you will be able to get your GED. So if a youth comes in below that, their focus is get them up to that eighth grade level because then, statistically, they know they have a much higher likelihood of passing the GED and moving on in their education. So everything is kept track of, everything is open for people to see in the system. The youth know about the finances, um, they know where the money is coming from, and they know that everyone is there to help them, but that they also need to be invested in it and work on it on their own. And one important distinction with the first place for youth approach versus what we do in Arizona is this happened with a couple of the youth, the young women I spoke with. If you are 18 and you sign up for it, or you know, you're accepted in the program and you just don't have your act together, things are not going well, you think you're great on your own and you decide, I'm done with this, I'm leaving the program, you can come back. So you do get a second chance and a third chance. Um, as long as you are showing that yes, you are taking steps, maybe they're not as big a step as the program people would want, but you're working toward it. You get those second and third chances, which you don't get in the Arizona system. So I wanted to just also say a bit about the approach that we used, which was report locally, find out what we're doing here in Arizona, what works, what doesn't work, and then go out and find experts, find good examples of what happens in all these three phases of, of child welfare and foster care. And then go 
do some research, visit, talk, learn, and then bring those back and figure out how to share that information with people here. So, because we tend to always get very isolated, we know what's happening here, what's not happening here, and we either think, we know what we're doing, we don't need help, or things are so awful here, it can never be better. So we really wanted to find places across the country that had been where we've been and have made different choices and things have worked out, so lessons learned. And that is an approach that we've used before when the STAR did a series on Davis-Monthan Air Force Base a couple years ago, and it's an approach that we hope to use again. Uh, the editorial focus for the STAR this year is going to be early childhood education. We're hoping to be able to fund a similar approach where we can find out what's happening here and then go and report and bring that information back. So it's it's a reporting ability that we wouldn't have without the generous support from the Community Foundation. So with that, thank you very much. When I first got into group homes, I was constantly getting attached and, you know, being ripped away from these people who I just got attached to. I've been in, like, fosters, foster homes. I've been in group homes. I've been in residential treatment centers. I felt unwanted. You don't really have anybody. At one point, I had 32 different diagnoses and was taking 12 different medications. I've been on meds since I was four. It made me feel numb. They weren't addressing my trauma or like how I've been through, like why I was so upset, why I couldn't form any attachments. It seems like people are against child abuse, you know, when you're a child, but when you grow up, society basically tells you to get over it. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a joint presentation by the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star about the STARS investigation fixing our foster care crisis on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our speakers today were Community Foundation for Southern Arizona President and CEO Clint Maybe, Arizona Daily Star Editor Jill Jordan Spitz, reporter Patty Matchler, and reporter Emily Bregel. This is part one of a two-part series. You can read more on the Arizona Daily Star's website at Tucson.com. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes at kxci.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Shogger.